Welcome to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's On the Wing Podcast. Buckle up and ride shotgun as we cover everything you need to know about the uplands. The habitat. The hunting. And of course, your favorite bird dogs. The National Wild Pheasant Conservation Plan was created to provide a blueprint for restoring and maintaining pheasant populations across the country. Written by more than two dozen total contributors from 23 state wildlife agencies, the National Plan details the habitat habitats needed to support a national pheasant harvest goal of at least 5.9 million roosters nationwide based on a multi-state habitat model. And today we're going to talk about that plan and we'll touch on the current drought this spring and into summer now and what that means for the birds. Our featured guest for this episode of On the Wing podcast is the National Wild Pheasant Conservation Plan Coordinator, the guy responsible for producing 5.9 million roosters in the back of game. Well, not not just by himself. Uh, Dr. Scott Taylor, the National Wild Pheasant Conservation Plan Coordinator. Welcome to On the Wing Podcast. Uh, I, I'm going to call you Scott because I feel like I, I know you as Scott, or, or should I call you Doc Taylor? Uh, definitely Scott. Yes. <laughs> you can call me what my mom calls me. That's, that's fine. Um, well, t- this is your inaugural, uh, conversation on, on the wing podcast. So let's, let's start with a little bit of background about you. I knew you before this particular role. you were, you were, um, I think, you know, 18 years ago, when I first met you, I think that was probably when I first met you, you were the, the upland biologist for the state of Nebraska. Am I recalling correctly? 18 years ago, that would have been, that would have been correct. Yes. <laughs> and you have a better memory than I do. I wish I could say I remembered when we met, but uh, I've lost most of those memories past uh, about 2000. So, yeah. <laughs> well, tell us a little bit about your background, where you grew up, um, where you went to, to college and, kind of your career path leading to the the top pheasant biologist in the country, the guy in charge of 5.0 million rooster harvest. Well, you keep saying that. So I'm, I'm gonna, <laughs> you're going to have to allow me to back away from that a little bit as we go. But anyway, uh, so yeah, I'm from uh, Northeast Kansas originally, Topeka. Mm. And so I grew up hunting uh, quail and ducks mainly. And uh I'm old enough to remember a time when we really didn't have deer and turkeys around. So it was a, it was mainly waterfowl and, and quail in my neck of the woods. And so I went to school. I got my undergraduate degree at Kansas State University in Manhattan. And uh, my senior year, I did a special project on quail. And that turned into a master's project at Texas A&I University. And, uh, you know you're old when they change the name of your school. So this, <laughs> the school is now known as Texas A&M at Kingsville, but okay. um, way back when uh, it was A&I. And so uh, I studied Bob White 
quail out uh, on a border ranch down in South Texas uh, for a few years. And then um, I had worked for uh, the Upland Game Biologist in Kansas uh, a summer while I was in college and stayed in touch with him. And he had a quail project coming up that we kind of turned into a PhD project. Um, so I studied quail in East Central Kansas around the town of Emporia. Um, while I got my degree, my PhD at uh, University of Wisconsin at Madison. So I was back and forth for several years between Emporia and, uh, and Wisconsin, had a good time. And then um, as I finished up that project, then I was lucky enough to get hired on at uh, Nebraska Game and Parks Commission. So and how many you years were you, how, how many years were you at Nebraska? I was in Nebraska for about 20 years. Okay. And so I was the Upland Game Biologist for, I think, about nine years. And then uh, I was the Wildlife Research Section Leader for another five or six. And then I was the Wildlife Chief for about three years. And mm. then um, this uh, this new position, this Pheasant uh, Plan Coordinator position came open uh, in 2016. And I thought that sounded like uh, something that would allow me to get back to my upland game roots. I, as wildlife chief, I was dealing with lots of different things, which is very interesting and engaging and challenging. Um, but I always had a yearning to um, kind of narrow my focus back down to um, where I began. So upland game is is where I call home. And, and you're the first and only person that's ever held this particular position, aren't you? For better or for worse. Yes, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, when in the intro, I talked about, you know, 23 different states are involved in this, um, including Pheasants Forever, right? Um, right, right. What was that interview process like? I mean, how many states interviewed you to ultimately hire you? Well, it it was sort of a an odd process. So, the uh, there was an initial an initial round of interviews and I did not apply. Um, I was I was in charge or I was asked to help uh, with the interview process, getting people lined up and and um, they interviewed a bunch of of good candidates and those were held in uh, Omaha at the time. And one of the stipulations of the uh, position was they wanted it uh, to be housed in Brookings, South Dakota. And the folks that uh, they offered the job to uh, at the end of the day weren't willing to relocate. Um, mm. And so they opened the interview process back up. And at that time, I did apply and uh, ended up getting that job and uh, moving to Brookings. But, yeah, there was probably four or five uh, states represented on the on the interview uh, panel. And so, yeah, it was sort of a roundabout way of me and me ending up in that position. But uh, uh, for me, it worked out. It worked out fine. And that the Brookings connection was uh, for, for a while there, Pheasants Forever had an office in Brookings, um, staffed right. by Dave Nomsen, Matt Morlock came into that office. And, and, um, you know, subsequently, and obviously, you were in that office for a number of years, then pandemic hits, things change, the world gets used to doing things virtually. And, 
and um, we no longer have that office, but we have uh, all sorts of presidents. I mean, we've never had more employees in the state of South Dakota, and it also has allowed you to make a move back to closer to your roots and as well, right? That's correct. So, yeah, for a variety of reasons, uh, we decided um, that having a physical office in Brookings was um, no longer absolutely necessary for the staff working there. And so uh, I think in the fall of early fall of 2019 is when we we closed that office. And um, I took that opportunity to get a little closer to home. Uh, and so I, I moved to Manhattan, Kansas, uh, back to my Kansas State Wildcat roots and um, <laughs> and uh, have have settled in here. And so yeah, I started working from home and then COVID hit about three or four months after I got here and settled in. So, mm. um, yeah, I've been I've been in that working from home mode uh, for a little longer than than most, but not not too much. No. <laughs> well, we're going to dive into the National Pheasant Plan, talk about the, the meat and potatoes of it. Uh, we're also going to talk. Um, it's the most frequently asked question on social media these days in the Pheasants Forever circles. Um, what's this drought doing to the birds? So we're going to talk about those two topics. But before we dive in, a um, uh, couple notes, uh, words from our sponsors. Um, thank you to uh, our great partners in South Dakota, South Dakota Department of Tourism, in South Dakota Game, Fish, and Parks, reminding all of our listeners to make a memory this season in the world's greatest place to hunt pheasants, South Dakota. Get your license and plan your adventure at huntthegreatestsd.com. And also, brand new commercial spot from our partners at Federal Premium ammunition, the official ammunition of pheasants forever and quail forever. Here you go. It's the first time played on On the Wing podcast. The flush. So fast, it hardly seems real. So vivid, the moment freezes in time before erupting in a blur of spurs and feathers. It's why we changed the way upland loads are built with Prairie Storm. Exclusive flight control flex wad technology and a mix of copper plated lead and flight stopper pellets combine to create dense, deadly shot strings through any choke. Longer shots, more power, fewer missed birds. Only from Federal. All right, Scott. Now let's start. Tell us about the National Wild Pheasant Plan. And let's start with kind of the, the outline for what the plan is. I, I teased a couple of times now that the ultimate goal is to produce 5.9 million bird harvest in any given year. Um, where are we at today? What's the average harvest right now? Uh, well, that's a little hard to come by. Um, and let, let me back up a little bit. Um, so the plan came about, um, the idea for the plan came about in uh, 2006. So mm. quite a while ago now. Yeah. I was actually still the pheasant biologist in, in Nebraska when this idea came up. And um, the Bob White folks had produced a national plan a few years before. 
and they were able to leverage that plan into some favorable favorable farm bill policy, uh, particularly the CP33 uh, option within CRP, the Quail Buffers Program. Um, and having a national plan um, really helped them make their case that mm. they needed this uh, this program. And so the you know the the uh, pheasant folks, which in many states are the same, the quail biologist is a pheasant biologist. So um, we were not over only looking across the fence at the quail world. We were uh, on that side of the fence already. Mm -hmm. uh, but but in the context of uh, pheasant conservation, we thought, well, um, okay, we see how this game is played. Let's let's get together and put together a national plan um, focused on sort of national, particularly national farm bill policy, and see if we can get some more favorable uh, outcomes out of the farm bill using the, the plan as leverage. So that's how it started. And um, uh, the group that, that started the ball rolling was... Uh, a group of Midwest pheasant biologists called the Midwest Pheasant Study Group. And yeah. they used to meet every uh, couple of years, started back in, I think, 1960 was the first year they started uh, wow. to get together. And uh, it was a, you know, a really informal group. And to get the plan uh, put together, though, uh, was going to require more work than we'd be put been putting into that group. Um, mm -hmm. And so it took quite a while for people to carve out enough time collectively to, to put the plan together. And uh, ultimately uh, it was finished about 2012 and uh, approved by uh, the Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies was kind of overseas multi-state efforts or, or can uh, in 2013. So we, re we refer to the first edition of the plan as the 2013 plan. Okay. Um, and so at that time, uh, the states were trying to come up with a metric uh, of how they should express their goals and how they should relate uh, habitat needs to meeting that goal. And mm -hmm. one of the, the metrics that most states at that time uh, collected was harvest. Sure. Um, different states... Uh, survey pheasants different ways and, and they couldn't really find a, a good meeting place um, with any other metric other than harvest. So they ended up at harvest. Um, so that's where that 5.9 million harvest comes from. Um, moving forward in time, though, trying to relate acres of habitat to harvest, mm -hmm. uh, one of the shortcomings of that approach is uh, you kind of need a middleman uh, to make that happen. And that's the pheasant hunter. And mm. so, uh, unfortunately our pheasant hunter participation has dropped, uh, pretty steadily since 2013, mm. which, um, sort of plays havoc with that acres of habitat and harvest relationship and kind of makes that sort of break down. So, right. It's um, a variable that maybe you, you weren't at, back in 2000 and wait, you said 2013, the original, that's, that's when the the original was uh, was finally approved. Yes, so unforeseen yeah. changes in the dynamic at that point. Right. So we assumed something was going to be constant that ended up not being constant. Mm. And that was hunter participation. So mm -hmm. here in these last um, two years, and particularly but in the last year, um, the states decided to revise the plan, mm. come up with a model that didn't use harvest, but uh, some other abundance metric and come up with, you know, take another uh, run at that question 
um, and the $100,000 question is, you know, how many acres of habitat, specifically nesting habitat, and specifically CRP, uh, do we need to uh, meet all the state pheasant management objectives that are that are out there? So that's what I've been spending most of my time the last year uh, doing, trying to answer that question. Have you found an answer? Well, we are very close. Yes. Okay. So, um, so this this revision process is now sort of coming to a close. Uh, the the plan uh, has sort of two partnerships associated with it that are interrelated. One is the technical committee, uh, and those that's the pheasant biologists, and those are the ones that actually write the plan um, in conjunction with me. And then uh, we have another uh, another partnership called the the National Plan Management Board, hmm. which is sort of the the administration type folks in the state wildlife agencies, um, as well as as Pheasants Forever. They sort of set strategic direction for the for the partnership, and it's up to them to ultimately approve the plan. So, the Tech Committee and I have come up with what we think is a final draft of our revision. And uh, I just sent that revision to the management board um, two hours ago. <laughs> and we're, we're set to meet, uh, we're set to meet July 26th as a management board to discuss uh, that draft and potentially approve, approve the draft. So we're per- getting close to the, the finish line, but uh, not quite there yet. So a couple things that has struck me as you've talked about this. Um, One, you know, I'm sure there'll be some listeners that said, boy, there wasn't a national pheasant plan until 2013. That seems sort of head scratching. But the reality, at least my perception of that being outside of the world of the biologist is that, you know, unlike, unlike ducks or waterfowl, you know, waterfowl are migratory species that really need to be managed from a continental perspective because they they breed in you know the northern states and in Canada and they overwinter in the south and you know they're they're requiring habitats throughout a life cycle that spans the in multiple multiple states. When you're talking about quail. Now, there is a plan that's a little bit older than this pheasant plan, um, but quail and pheasants, upland birds, the life cycle of these birds, generally speaking, occurs within two miles, right? So so the reality is most, if, if not virtually all of the management decisions for pheasants and for quail are being made within the state boundaries is somewhat very natural. That's why there there wasn't a plan until that sort of aha moment that, well, the farm bill does have implications across boundaries. And if we can demonstrate what's good for South Dakota would also be good for North Dakota from a farm bill perspective, then, then that's where the relevancy of the plan comes into play. Is that an accurate assessment of the kind of the scenario that led to this? Very much so. Yeah. The the upland birds, the resonant game birds, as we call them, uh, non-migratory game birds, um, we call those state trust species, meaning there's not a federal nexus. Uh, there's not, not a 
a place in federal law that brings the federal government into their conservation unless uh, they would be uh, listed or threatened mm-hmm. uh, for listing as a, a threatened or endangered species. And, and then the feds get involved. But up until that point, um, it's the state's individual responsibility to, to manage those species. And like you said, the, the states are pretty good at cooperating uh, on management of, of species when, um, when it's required to do that. You mentioned waterfowl. That's probably the longest standing mm-hmm. partnership that the states have in collectively managing uh, a resource. And, you know, it's it's second nature uh, to the waterfowl mm-hmm. folks to, to work across state lines and and and, uh, you know, national boundaries as well. Uh, but it's it's less obvious the the benefits for doing that are less obvious with with resident game birds and on, you know, on and this is probably more true in the past than it is now, but on some level, uh, you know, the states are actually competing with each other for, Mm. um, for those non-resident hunters. And so, um, Mm. there's, there's, uh, a little, uh, a little competition and not as much obvious cooperation that, that was required in the past. So, uh, but like you said, uh, the states have long, have long recognized that the farm bill is, you know, where our bread is buttered from an upland game and uh, upland conservation standpoint, and have always worked um, both uh, collectively through the Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies and with uh, Peasants Forever's uh, policy folks uh, who have been leaders in this area for a long time. Um, so they, they've always worked on farm bill stuff together. And mm. so it was, that made it a lot easier and not a, not a far leap at all for them to uh, right. to see how pheasant conservation could could benefit from a little more cooperation. And, and it really parallels, and I think back to 2005 when Pheasants Forever created Quail Forever. And early on, we had members in, you know, northern states where quail wouldn't exist, you know, for hundreds of miles. The, North Dakota, Montana, where you know, there was criticism, like, you know, head scratching. Why, why are we starting quail forever? But today, when you look in retrospect, the fact that pheasants forever and quail forever are together makes us relevant in a Georgia senator's office and a Montana senator's office when we talk the farm bill. It's made it, it the best friend for pheasants is the Bob White quail in the work that we do in Bob White range allows us to be relevant when we talk CRP in the farm bill. And it, and it really play, again, it parallels exactly what you're talking about and having a broader view. While, while these birds live within a two mile or give or take radius, the fact that we have a landscape level nationwide view of the, the the farm bill and habitat policy benefits all upland birds as a result um and i see you shaking your head because you probably witnessed that firsthand um in that time seeing that you know the creation of quail forever and how that's benefited pheasants right so for me it's always been a natural fit you know i've worked in the great plains and pheasant and quail are have always been on my plate so it hasn't been a one or other one or the other situation mm-hmm. for me in terms of my thinking uh, throughout my career. But um, 
certainly, you know, you use the word relevance. That's really the key uh, to moving the political ball is to make whatever you're trying to achieve as as relevant you can as relevant as you can for as many people as you can. Um, mm-hmm. And that just greases the skids to make things a lot easier. So uh, absolutely. And so I don't want to keep circling you back to this one number because <laughs> you've already <laughs> you've already explained the some of the problems with the 5.9 million rooster number, but I'm sure there's listeners out there kind of wondering what the ballpark is. So from you know if if I can relate to some numbers that I think about the the best day the best years of pheasant harvest in my lifetime was kind of that 07, 08 window when South Dakota harvested more than 2 million roosters in that one state by themselves during that year. Minnesota, I think in 07 or 08, uh, was over 600,000. Um, you know, Kansas in a really good year will ho- harvest over a million birds. Um, North Dakota can get into that 700,000. Uh, once upon a time, Iowa was a million bird harvest, but they've they've settled more into that 400,000 bird harvest. And, you know, some of it has to do with weather, which we're going to talk about, but a, a lot of it is correlated to how many acres are on the ground for habitat, particularly if you go back to 07 and 08, think the farm bill was authorized was it authorized at 39 million and we had 36 million enrolled or am i getting my numbers slightly screwed up there i am not sure what the cap was but yeah that 30 36 i think 36 and 37 million was was as high as we ever got right and if you look at the harvest in the line graph year by year with crp totals i mean those those um, lines parallel each other. When CRP acres go up, pheasant numbers are right in line with it, correct? Generally speaking, that's correct. Now, as, as part of this plan revision process, I'm sort of looking at state data um, on a state-by-state basis. And so we can make some general statements about uh, relationships between CRP and and pheasant abundance and hunter participation as well. Um, but I, I haven't come up with a generalization that works for, for all the states. So, so there are, there are some states uh, where the relationship between pheasant abundance based on the index that the, the state chose to use and, uh, and acres appears fairly weak. Hmm. Um, you know, that's, that's, I would say that's the exception rather than the rule, but it, it does, you know, make you want to dig into that a little deeper and see if we can figure out what it is that's going on. And I, I should say that the, the plan is based on nesting habitat acres. Mm. And so just because, um, the types of, of habitats that pheasants use, uh, also happen to be tracked uh, by USDA on an annual basis. So we have a, a data source in terms of acres of habitat uh, to draw from. But, hmm. uh, th- you know, if we're looking at or we think about uh, winter cover, um, you know, wetlands and 
those smaller patches of habitat that can be real important to pheasants um, during the fall and winter period, uh, we don't have a data set to uh, draw from to figure out what's going on with with those habitats. Mm. So um, that could explain part of the the lack of relationship we see in some states, because um, in those states or, or maybe in other states as well, um, those fall and winter habitats could be um, more important than than we're able to account for in okay. our in our system. But uh, but going back to your larger point. Absolutely. You, and certainly when you roll all these state uh, data sets up into a, a national picture, um, the the track of of nesting habitat and CRP and pheasant populations, uh, there's a, a very clear and strong relationship there. So I keep peppering you with questions, taking you down different angles. Um, I, I'm sure in this role, you've given your elevator speech about what the national pheasant plan is a million times so so give that um kind of descriptor to our audience um you know if you'd step back and it, describe what these 23 states are trying to put on paper what's that look like well we're trying to put on paper what the states collectively uh value with regard to uh, our activities in the in the pheasant conservation arena. What do we think is the most important thing to do, mm. or you know the most important two dozen things we need mm. to do? Um, have that conversation. Put that down on paper. Um, among those most important things to do is to come up with a uh, a national figure with with regard to what we've been talking about. How many acres do we need? Uh, within a state and collectively among the states uh, to support uh, pheasant conservation uh, in a way that states want it supported. And also to lay out the relationships between uh, our, our different investments um, in pheasant conservation. So we, you know, as an organization, Pheasants Forever, and as state agencies, we're investing in uh, actual habitat projects. We're investing in R3 projects. We're investing in access programs. We're investing in policy um, efforts. And how do all those things fit together? And hmm. how can we you know, make sure we, we understand all those connections? Um, and that sort of helps us identify which of those nodes we want to push hardest on or push harder on that we're maybe not uh, pushing on as hard as we need to. And through that process, also figure out, you know, where do we need more information? Um, mm. You know, for example, uh, you know, we have, we have the option when we think about hunter recruitment, retention and reactivation, there's a lot of different avenues we can take to try to, move the needle there, we can, we can do habitat. Um, and that's sort of what we did for a long time. We figured if mm -hmm. we restored the habitat, then the birds would come and then the hunters would follow. And that's all we really need to know. Um, but particularly as we've gone through this plan revision process and looked at the data. Um, so pheasants are actually declining faster than habitat 
is declining hmm. and hunter participation is declining faster than birds are declining. Hmm. So those relationships are there, but it's not a linear, linear kind of thing. So if we wanted to increase hunter participation by 10%, um, you know, the old approach would be, well, we need to uh, increase the bird numbers by 10%. And so we need to increase habitat by 10%, but it doesn't appear to be quite that linear. Um, and it may have been linear um, 30, 40 years ago or during the early years of CRP or whatever. But uh, for whatever reason, those relationships are, are bending and, and curving and making it hard to plan and hard to make decisions about where exactly you should make uh, your, your big investments um, to move the needle. So, um, and, you know, most, uh, most of our efforts, you know, we like to think that we're managing pheasants and we're biologists and we like to think about that end of things, but, you know, pheasants and habitat are usually a means to some social end. And so mm -hmm. that social end is, you know, either, um, uh, hunter participation and license revenue or support for conservation uh, policies that benefit, you know, society as a whole. So those are the, you know, those are the outcomes that we really want to see. And those other activities that we've done for a long time and, and still need to keep doing um, are our means to that end. So wow. it also, you know, that, that also brings to, um, to bear, you know, what is it that we're, we're trying to achieve and what do we measure? How do we measure those outcomes? Um, and how do we use that information then to make better decisions? So uh, the states are all in the same boat. Um, PF's in the same boat trying to answer those questions. And so this, this is another uh, arena where we can work together and come up with those answers probably more efficiently, you know, definitely more efficiently than we would, you know, just doing it state by state and, and chasing our tail that way. So as they say on Facebook, it's complicated. <laughs> <laughs> right. Or, yeah. The, 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 uh, the answer to every, virtually every question I'm asked is, you know, it depends. That's my yeah. stock, stock answer. So, so, yeah. so as you're explaining, you know, the correlation of these variables, hunter numbers, bird numbers, habitat numbers, and I'm thinking about, you know, 23 different states with different, honestly, priorities based on what's going on in the state or what the landscape is, where pheasants fit. Like a pheasant harvest in South Dakota just naturally is more important than the pheasant harvest in Idaho. I mean, it just is right. economically. And I think about those 23 biologists sitting around trying to develop this plan um i'll i'll i have a newfound respect for you as a switzerland type of guy because i'm assuming <laughs> that you have to figure out how to generate consensus you with all these different variables to consolidate like okay we need to go crp our magic number for crp is this and trying to build consensus and can, Consensus building is a huge component of this role, isn't it? It is. And, and so there are, you know, there are certain subjects that we, 
you know, we don't have great consensus on uh, in terms of, you know, how the agency is approaching a certain, um, you know, potential method of um, manipulating something. Not everybody, not all, all state agencies are on the same page all the time, but, um, you know, we're all, we're all in the habitat business, um, sort of in a fundamental way. Mm-hmm. And we're all in the business of trying to use our scarce resources in a way that produces the most benefits um, we can in whatever situation we find ourselves in. And so those are sort of the um, the win-wins uh, that are always going to be out there among the states. And so um, that's, you know, that's why the plan sort of focuses uh, on those those aspects of of pheasant conservation and management, um, and I and I will say uh, we we have added a state, so we're up to twenty four states. Okay. Um, the original plan did not include California, and California has decided to participate in in uh, the revision of of the plan, and so we're up to twenty four now. Okay. And where where is the most consensus when you think about the plan? Where do those 24 states, like, generally speaking, they come to, like, yeah, we're all behind this? Certainly, uh, I would say, you know, the habitat theme writ large. Uh, By and large, uh, the importance of CRP uh, to a state's uh, habitat portfolio uh, across the pheasant states. Now, that... um, that varies a lot. Um, Mm -hmm. A state like California, you know, just doesn't have much CRP. uh, And most of the pheasant habitat that they have isn't, um, isn't CRP based. And so um, that's one end of the spectrum. And then you have the Dakotas, obviously, on the other end of the spectrum. But um, CRP is a common enough um, variable and an important enough issue for the vast majority of the pheasant states that um, concentrating on CRP uh, is is time well spent uh, mm-hmm. for the partnership, and also uh, hunter R three mm-hmm. um, pheasant hunter R three specifically, and um, small game uh, hunter recruitment retention and reactivation. Okay, uh, we've been working with uh, AFWA, the Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies. Uh, to look at this issue, and it's it's an issue that goes across small game species, and um, the hunter participation declines that we see, uh, in large part, uh, certainly from a from a national standpoint, from a, uh, from a large part, are driven by small game hunter declines. And so large game hunters are fairly stable. We see a little bit of a decline up and down and waterfowl is, you know, uh, also on the decline, but there's not as many people overall that hunt, hunt waterfowl nationally. Um, but uh, small game hunters have, uh, that category of participation is really declined. So all the, all the states are concerned about that and, um, it's easy to reach a consensus that we need to understand that problem better and, and better respond to it. So the obvious next question is where, what's the topic that's got the most uh, challenge for you to build consensus among 24 different states? 
<laughs> well, it's it's the usual controversial subjects um, that have been around since we've started trying to manage pheasants mm. in this country. So it's um, what's the appropriate use of pin race birds? Mm. Um, what's the appropriate approach to uh, predator management? Um, what's and sort of a lagging and lagging third place is sort of what um, what if any effect uh, hunting might have on on populations. Hmm. And, you know, we thought we answered that question a long time ago, and we did in terms of uh, just sort of the numerical biology of um, of roosters only harvest mm -hmm. um, in terms of the direct effects on on population size um, the following year. Uh, but we're, I, I would say that um, at least some of us are rethinking some of the indirect costs uh, or indirect effects of hunting on um, not only pheasant populations, but, but hunter satisfaction, hunter success. Um, you know, is, is there a way to, um, well, manipulate hunting pressure in a way that would produce um, better success among hunters and higher satisfaction hmm. um, scores. And, and also we do, we don't know, I would say for sure that, you know, intense hunting pressure doesn't have some uh, negative effect on, um, on pheasant populations that are highly fragmented, hmm. uh, that don't have a lot of uh, options with regard to uh, the habitats that they're using and, so I, I would say that's still an open question, but still that, that, uh, that category of question is in a, in, in terms of controversy and is, is in a distant third place to the first two that I mentioned. So, um, yeah. So I'll go to the controversial component of the area where there's a lot of consensus diving back to CRP the controversial component is what's the magic CRP number? Uh, you know, we, we touched on earlier, you know, the, the most, the best of times in our generation, 07, 08, when we had 36 million acres, we're kind of, we're, we're at an all time low right now, currently in the 20 million acre. Thankfully we've got a general sign up happening right now through July 23rd. So if you're a landowner and you want to learn more, get into your local Pheasants Forever, Quail Forever, Farm Bill Biologist, or USDA Service Center and find out about CRP happening right now. Um, but so we got authorization to get up to 27 million acres, but there's numbers out there, you know, up to 50 million that uh, former Congressman and Chair of the House Ag Committee, Colin Peterson, um, has have put out there before he left office. Has the states that the 24 states that are a part of the National Pheasant Plan come to a consensus on a magic CRP number to to look at as we approach the 2023 Farm Bill? Well, I would say that that is the job of the management board on July 26th to. Um, to formally bless uh, the number that is in the draft plan. Okay. So um, I will tell you that um, part of part of uh, coming up with that number is uh, 
uh, not only how many acres of CRP uh, uh, enrollment that we've lost, but how, how do you account for uh, the losses in most cases, in most states, the losses of all the other habitat types that have happened since mm, 2005. Right. So native prairie that's been broken as an right. example. Right. As well as, so, so the, the categories of habitat, uh, nesting habitat types that we um, tried to account for were CRP, uh, native or, or all types of pasture, actually pasture as defined by USDA, uh, small grains, so wheat primarily, but also barley and flax and oats, and mm. depending on where you are, uh, grass, hay, and alfalfa. So those are the four, or I'm sorry, the five categories of nesting habitat that we tracked through time. Um, it appears that three of those types are, are they could be, particularly pasture, could be declining a bit, but... Um, Compared to CRP and small grains, those other three are fairly stable. It's okay. it's CRP and, and small grains that um, sort of on a range-wide basis we've lost from the landscape. So given that we've lost both CRP and small grains and to some extent some of the, the other categories, how many acres of CRP do we need to make up for all that? And so I can, you know, I, uh, we haven't come to a conclusion on what that number should be yet, but I can tell you that it's more than we ever had. Okay. And, and so, um, and I can also tell you that, um, you know, if you add up all the acres that all the states need, that's one number. Um, but in terms of how much CRP we actually need, you know, we're not going to wave a magic wand and say we need Sure. 20 million acres of CRP and it needs to go exactly where we tell you to put it. Um, what's going to happen is, you know, hopefully the, the national enrollment will increase and those, those acres will go pretty much where they've always gone. And if that happens, then what's the national enrollment need to be to fill everybody's bucket. Right. Okay. And for those States that, uh, don't rely on CRP much. Um, I can tell you that the national CRP enrollment will never reach uh, a level to fill their bucket just mm. because CRP is a rel relatively minor part of their habitat portfolio. And so trying to raise the CRP lever enough to meet all their needs uh, is not gonna happen. So there is no national number that meets every state's goal. So we have to, so that's another, it's complicated issue. <laughs> we have to, we have to decide uh -huh. where to draw the line and say, well, we can, we can get, you know, most of the states, most of the way at this national enrollment. And we're going to have to live with a little shortfall um, in some states. And where, where, where should we draw that line? That's, that's both, um, uh, biologically sound and politically feasible. Yeah. So, well, I could I clearly see that uh, you, you've made a strong case to come back and do another podcast with me. Well, after the uh, after the the plan is endorsed and, and a, a number can be made public, 
um, which right. is totally fine because I do want to draw listeners' attention to the fact that you have been, I think probably four months now, you've been writing a, a monthly blog on the Pheasants Forever website. Uh, go to pheasantsforever.org and type in Dr. Scott Taylor into the search and um, Scott's blogs, monthly blogs about the National Pheasant Plan will pop up and you can read about some really thoughtful, interesting topics related to managing for pheasants, including the dilemma dilemma that uh, guys like me create for biologists like Scott, <laughs> where we call every September and say, you know, what's the forecast look like this year <laughs> and how that um, puts biologists like Scott between a rock and a hard place between the, the state agencies um, that handle tourism and license sales and um, figuring out uh, the reality of biology based on weather and habitat. So there's a wonderful blog um, about that on pheasantsforever.org, uh, amongst a number of other things. Another one that um, Scott wrote about was if you have limited financial resources, do you place those dollars in habitat where you think they're going to produce the most birds? Or do you place that in creating habitat where there's not as much to sort of bridge the gap? And, and we'll, we could talk about that on another podcast, but I want to get to um, the current situation related to the drought. It's the number one question on people's minds that are planning their hunting season. And I know um, I'm running out of time with your current window of availability too. So I want to get to the A topic of, of current events. Um, as I look at the drought monitor, um, I think it's drought.gov. Uh, anybody can check it out online. And it's, it's devastating to look at um, across much of the country right now. Um, We'll, we'll leave aside some really scary drought in the Southwest United States and, and talk about that on a quail um, biology podcast here coming up. But as you look in the pheasant range, Scott, um, the Dakotas have suffered through a very, um, very dry couple of months. And, and honestly, that dates back to a really mild winter, which we were all pretty excited about, but uh, it didn't create the moisture. Um, in other words, I think adults came through the winter across the pheasant range in damn good shape, mm -hmm. but then things stayed dry. So walk us through a, a little bit about the current conditions for the pheasant range and how a drought impacts pheasant um, reproduction. Right. So I'm, you know, I'm going to stay away from any, any kind of forecast necessarily um, just because I don't have to do that anymore. And um, I, there's, there's still, there's still time on the clock. Yep. So, um, you know, I, I've been in contact with um, most of the pheasant biologists in the Western uh, half of the, the country here in the last couple of weeks and asked them, you know, what, how things were looking and how they were responding to questions. And, you know, they're, they're still, you know, they're, there's, they're definitely concerned. Um, 
the conditions have certainly got their their full attention. Um, you know, the, the states that are, are still running summer surveys, those usually happen uh, in August. And so uh, we can't really put any numbers on anything uh, until then. And those results are, are in. Um, but we can talk generally about what happens during our, uh, a drought. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, it's, it basically comes down to the choices hens are making. Um, you know, at each point within the, the nesting cycle. And they're, they're basically trying to um, play a little pre-programmed game in their head of, you know, do I invest in reproductive um, efforts now or do I punt and wait until conditions are better? And for, for most species that um, have short lifespans, uh, they're really programmed to try as hard as they can um, the first opportunity they get. Mm-hmm. And so uh, pheasants are, and quail certainly, and, and pheasants to a large degree are, are in that category. So usually the birds are going to try to, you know, regardless of conditions, they're going to give it a go. Uh, but um, particularly in the drier part of the pheasant range, which is in the western half, um, we're on a little more of a razor's edge with those those decisions that the that the hens are making, and the drier it is, um, you know, obviously this this evolutionary game that the hens are playing is based on the probability that their offspring are going to not only be produced but survive until next year mm-hmm. and reproduce themselves. That's what um, reproductive fitness is. That's what natural selection is based on, and so. Um, the, the hens are trying to, to figure out if the conditions are going to be good enough uh, for their, their chicks to survive. Um, the drier it gets, the, um, you know, the less cover there is on the landscape in terms of nesting cover, the less structure there is. And we know generally that um, nests have a higher probability of su- success the, in the um, habitat patches with the greatest structure. Mm. So structure is going down, which means nest success is, is the probability of nest, nest success is, is also declining. And predator effectiveness goes up. Right, right. And, you know, there's a lot of uh, potential interactions with, you know, other prey species and predators out there and how all that comes together um, during a drought. Everything is stressed during yeah. a drought, basically. Um, and also, you know, on the on the human side of things, um, when we're in drought conditions, uh, you know, the, the pastures are hit harder. Mm-hmm. Uh, CR, CRP gets opened up for haying and grazing, um, which reduces nesting available nesting cover even more. And so it puts even more pressure on, on hens and tips the balance again to the, the hens deciding you know, quote unquote, deciding uh, that they need to give up and and delay their their reproductive um, efforts until next year. And obviously, that's not <laughs> in the pheasant and quail and resident game bird world. That's that's a tough bet to make, right. um, given the short lifespans of these birds. But um, if conditions are bad enough, that's what happens. So uh, so hens will uh, either abandon. Um, 
you know, after they've started incubating or they won't, they won't, they will lay a few eggs, but won't start incubating. Um, or if they lose their nest, they won't re-nest. Um, you know, the birds that do stick it out and are fortunate enough to produce chicks, um, you know, habitat conditions can uh, obviously weigh on chick survival as well. Um, and a lot of, in some cases anyway, drought can come with um, abundant insects, which is a good thing, mm -hmm. generally speaking. Um, but the chicks do need um, moisture and they can be susceptible to heat stress and mm -hmm. all those other things. So it's a tough world for a pheasant chick under the best of circumstances. Um, but under extreme conditions, drought or you know any extreme, uh, they're gonna they're gonna struggle. So let me just so um, I'll I'll say what I think I know about the biology of pheasant reproduction, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, just to to get get our listeners some um, measure of understanding. But then I think there's some reasons for optimism too. So. A pheasant and, a, and and quail species, they will continue to re-nest um, as long as the eggs don't hatch. So if a hen lays a nest, and so part of this, the first nesting attempt is when they produce the most eggs, say average of 11 or 12 eggs, and right. say they lay 11 or 12 and on day four of incubation, a skunk comes along and knocks the hen off and eats the eggs. That hen, this is good news, that hen will re-nest because those not, right. a, not a single one of those eggs have hatched. The downside is the that hen will go from laying 11 or 12 eggs down to seven or nine. The, if that skunk comes along again, and hopefully it doesn't, um, the third attempt, if they go to a third attempt, they might lay five eggs. So there is a decrease in the number of eggs, which at least they keep trying. So as long as one of those eggs hasn't reached hatch, so they, I think it's 23 days, right, of incubation. So right. up to, you know, up to day 23, as long as one of those hasn't hatched, a pheasant hen will continue to try to re-nest, correct? That's correct. And it's, it's, a, it's a little different with quail, particularly bobwhites, but for pheasants, that's, that's correct. Well, explain the little differences with quail. Well, with, with quail, for a long time, we thought exactly the same thing. If they, uh, if they lost a nest prior to hatching, that they would re-nest. But if they produce chicks, then that was it. Mm -hmm. But um, uh, technology actually changed our view there. Uh, once we were able to Radio, uh, radio tags on quail. The technology improved enough and uh, tags got small enough that we could put them on quail mm. and follow individual individual quail around. Uh, we found that it's it's complicated. It's more complicated. <laughs> so, um, so Bob Whites frequently will double brood. Mm -hmm. um, they will uh, frequently... Uh, hens will frequently lay clutches that males incubate. Which I call the, the Mr. Mom advantage. Right? Just the <laughs> right, fact that, because, right. you know, there aren't a whole lot of species, like you say, where the male will sit on the nest, because that doesn't happen with, fens at all, uh, with, with pheasant hens at all. But with bobwhites, right. 
huge advantage. Right. And so, you know, these are strategies that would be, that you would guess would happen when you've got a species that has such a high mortality rate, a short lifespan. Mm -hmm. You know, when, when a bird uh, has the great good fortune to make it to the breeding season and gets its one shot, um, these are strategies to make the most of that one shot, right? Yeah. So, um, but like you said, um, pheasants don't appear to uh, take quite an as extreme approach, but they will re-nest um, multiple times uh, if if they don't if they aren't successful in in previous attempts. So, yep. the The other thing, again, the the optimist in me in I mentioned it as we got into this subject that uh, the winter was pretty mild, which favored, you know, I, I, if I got my dates correct, North Dakota and Northern South Dakota, the year, the 2014 year, really bad ice storm knocked back bird numbers significantly. And they've been steadily on the increase across much of the Southern tier of North Dakota and the Northern tier of South Dakota, and, and as well as Montana. Uh, eastern side of Montana, steadily on the rise. And, you know, talking to friends in that part of the world this winter, they're like, oh boy, it is gangbusters. And I'm sure you've heard this too. Like they had virtually no snow cover. Birds could eat. They weren't stressed at all, all winter long. So it's heartbreaking to an ex extent to come into this drought when so much of this part of the country we're talking about was on the precipice of a boom. Um, the optimist in me thinks, well, uh, it was spring a heck of a lot earlier than normal. And pheasants are not generally driven as much. There's a, it's one of the variables. And here's where you need to correct me because I'm not a biologist, Scott, Dr. Scott. <laughs> um, but this is optimist projecting here that because it was an early spring, pheasant hens probably laid nests earlier than normal. In theory, they could have pulled off a brood earlier than normal. And like you say, a drought, there's still some insects in a drought. They didn't get gully washed nests. You know, there weren't hail storms. There wasn't exposed, you know, rain exposure that, that killed a whole bunch of chicks. Give me a glimmer of hope that that scenario might still be holding true for North Dakota and Northern South Dakota and in Montana. Right. Well, um, you know, my my contacts there have have told me that why that you know while they are generally dry, there are places where they have gotten some rain, and so it's not it's not a one size fits all mm. problem. So that's that's one good thing. Um, you know, we still have some time left, uh, for conditions to improve. That's another thing. Yeah. And, you know, I would say we can, <laughs> we can predict what is likely to happen, but, um, you know, I, I have spent enough time sort of waiting with bated breath on, on summer survey results. Mm -hmm. And sometimes a thing we think is going to happen doesn't end up happening, mm -hmm. at least not, you know, sometimes we think good things are happening or will happen mm -hmm. based on the conditions and they don't seem to materialize and the opposite can be true as well. So, um, 
I, I you know, this too shall pass. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, you're right. It, it's a shame when the stars appear to be aligning. It's almost, it's almost worse when, you know, things really look like they're, they're going to go great and they, mm-hmm. they don't, um, rather than, you know, just an average year. But, um, I would I would say, in talking to the pheasant biologists, they they were not uh, throwing in the towel yet okay. in terms of being able to produce birds. So the jury's still out. We got to wait and see. Ultimately, it's going to come <laughs> back to you know you're going to have to lace up your boots, get behind a good bird dog with a nose that can tell you better than <laughs> better than any of us what's out there. But I want to just press on one more piece. You've you've mentioned it uh, twice. There is still time. And as we record today, uh, June 29th, a lot of folks, you know, don't understand what you mean by there's still time. They've already thrown in the towel because they they think it's it's drought. But but there is still time. And honestly, there's been some pretty good news in the last week um, with rain. Uh, coming across the Dakotas, Minnesota. Um, I, I can't speak to Nebraska specifically. You might be able to help me out there. But I know that the the outlook has changed dramatically in the last seven days compared to what it was 14 days ago. Right. And, and you know, generally speaking, um, our, our big pulse of, of production comes from those first nests. And so if we lose that opportunity, you know, we lose the opportunity for, you know, a banner year, mm-hmm. obviously. Uh, but like we were talking about, you know, these, these birds are programmed to take advantage of opportunities. And so um, they're always living on kind of the knife's edge. And so if conditions do happen to improve and, you know, we're, we've still got, uh, a little time in June and, and all of July, um, there is time to uh, not completely crash and burn. Mm. Um, so, and like I said, even even in conditions where you are pretty sure what's going to happen, um, you just don't know. Mm-hmm. So, um, but I, you know, I would say if in the areas of, of completely and, and absolutely severe drought, in the western part of the of the range where we don't get much rain anyway, you know, it, it would be highly surprising if things were <laughs> were great. But um, uh, we'll just have to Ooh. have to see. And you know, the people that that love to hunt, um, you know, if you've hunted long enough, you've you've hunted through bad and good years, and and um, it's still something we love to do. And if that just means that we encountered a few fewer birds or go a few uh, less times, fine, while we're waiting for, for things to recover. Um, but um, this is just the nature of, of both upland game populations and upland game hunting is not every year is a great year. Yeah. Everywhere. Well, that's a key point everywhere. Uh, you mentioned that because I've, I've focused on where um, the greatest threat of the drought exists based on the map, the Dakotas, Montana, um, to an extent, Minnesota, Nebraska, Iowa, as you, you know, as you head further East, things are, um, much more, I guess, normal for, from a climate perspective, Michigan, Wisconsin are in a bit of a drought, but, you know, Illinois, Ohio, Indiana, Missouri, 
um, Kansas, Oklahoma, um, you know, some of those states look pretty decent weather-wise. So where you're going to find quality habitat, the weather's cooperated, and, um, you know, in theory, the birds are going to respond in those areas, right? Right. Absolutely. So, um, yeah, we'd, we'd love to... We'd love to have the you know the perfect equation to predict uh, in June or you know in February or whenever what what's going to happen with the birds given uh, given the data we have at hand. But um, uh, it's it's just <laughs> science is not caught up to that question yet. Unfortunately, <laughs> we we can only talk in generalities of what what generally happens, but. Um, your mileage may vary, certainly. <laughs> well, I know, I know, I'm pressing past your deadline to get to another another meeting, and I'll promise our listeners that I'll have you on again to talk in greater depth about the pheasant, the national pheasant plan, and and at a point where you can speak freely about what the the group has come to consensus around <laughs> in terms of uh, farm bill goals and. Um, and all, you know, honestly, all the all the metrics that the states have agreed to, to press forward. So we'll we'll get you on for a second podcast here in the near future. But I'll allow you to kind of put a bow on this conversation. And any any closing thoughts that you'd like to leave our listeners with, whether it be the National Pheasant Plan or the current um, conditions of based on on the drought during um, nesting season for the birds. Uh, just that, you know, habitat conservation never goes out of style. And, you know, we've, we've got a lot more things to learn and maybe some things to unlearn that we once learned that aren't quite the way uh, hmm. the world doesn't work quite the way we thought it did. Um, but what hasn't changed is, you know, we need the habitat base there for all this to work. Hmm. And so um, in in whatever way people can can support that mission, um, that's really what we need. Yeah. And it, it becomes even more important when, you know, we, we lose um, a little bit more of our pheasant hunting base right. uh, every year. It becomes, you know, more incumbent on the ones of us who are left to kind of pick up the slack and, and keep the ball moving forward. Yeah. So, that's that's the note I would like to end on, I think. Yeah, and it leads me into a great topic for a future podcast with you. And that's, you know, the many states now in, the, in an effort to expand hunting opportunities and grow hunters have started to lengthen out their seasons, right, in, further into winter, which I love the concept to be, I mean, I'm, I'm, died in the wool bird hunter. You know, I, I get three dogs and I'll hunt as long as I possibly can, no matter the weather. Uh, but I have wondered, you know, when we get into winter and clearly pheasant hunters have an advantage by only shooting roosters, but right. you know, we've all pushed hens in tough winter conditions out of secure high quality habitat just by a um, course of naturally hunting them. Um, and that's likely, I would assume, to have some impact on hen health, hen survival, and thus 
reproduction success come spring. So we'll 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 tease our listeners with that topic for a future um, episode, unless you want to weigh in on it right now. Uh, just just real quick, um, you know, I don't want to leave anybody with the impression that that anybody knows that um, hunting under any condition has you know some some obvious untoward effect on populations. We're a long way from making that conclusion. The only, the only data we have at this point um, that showed some sort of indirect effect was uh, a project in Nebraska and hens that used uh, more heavily hunted habitat patches the next spring uh, happened to lay smaller eggs. Um, smaller in size or smaller clutch? Smaller in size. Wow. So what does that mean? Hmm. Uh, I don't know what that means. Um, that may mean nothing. Um, or it may mean maybe we need to follow up and hmm. look at that a little more closely or um, look at that whole issue a little more closely. Hmm. Um, but uh, beyond that, uh, that's the only little peek into the world of potential indirect effects that we have. Hmm. So um, I, I would not, I would not necessarily recommend that people, you know, change their, their outlook on how they hunt or, or, uh, you know, their enthusiasm for late season hunting or any, anything like that. Um, we're, we're a long way from deciding whether we should change our attitude there or not. Hmm. But, um, so Another caveat. Right. Another, it's complicated. And, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah the get one more in there. So. <laughs> the, the title for this episode is "It's Complicated." <laughs> There's lots <laughs> exactly. of lots of variables, and it comes back to a, a slogan Pheasants Forever has had since 1982. You know, we can't control the weather. You know, we can't control the size of the pheasant hen's eggs, right? Right. What we can control as a society is the amount of quality and the quantity of wildlife habitat on the landscape. That's why pheasants forever and, and quail forever. That's why we exist. And hopefully right. that's uh, while, while you, our listeners are uh, listening to on the wing podcast, cause you care about um, our habitat mission and because of your, your passion for these birds in the pursuit of hunting them behind a good bird dog. And, and hopefully if you're not already a member of this organization, um, you feel compelled uh, because we certainly need you, whether it's the, um, the pandemic knocking out every single banquet across the country for the better part of a year. Well, maybe not every couple of them have been pretty innovative in holding drive-through banquets, but the moral of the story <laughs> is we could use you if you're listening and you care about these birds and the habitat they require, we could use you as a member of Pheasants Forever or Quail Forever. There's great um, offers on the websites right now, quailforever.org, pheasantsforever.org. Dr. Scott Taylor, thank you very much for, for giving me extra time today. This was a really, really thought provoking and interesting conversation. Excellent. I enjoyed it. Uh, folks, I'll, I'll point you again to pheasantsforever.org. Type in Scott Taylor, Dr. Scott Taylor, 
Um, actually, we don't even have you listed as doctor on your byline in the blogs. Good. That's <laughs> but, fine with me. But yeah. type in Scott Taylor, uh, it's a series of monthly blogs that uh, Dr. Taylor is writing on the website. Really thought-provoking conversations or topics, forecasts, where to spend money on Habitat, and and those will keep coming. Um, and then we'll we'll get um, Dr. Taylor on for for another podcast here in, in another month down the road. Uh, folks, thank you so much for listening. Keep your chin up. Keep optimistic. Mother Nature is a powerful thing, and uh, hen pheasants are going to keep trying to reproduce. And uh, fingers crossed, um, there's probably more good news out there than than we give them credit for. So fingers crossed we're going to have some good news coming. Uh, I am Bob St. Pierre reminding you to always follow the doc. Something good will rise. Thanks, folks. <laughs>